Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by But That's Another Story with host Will Schwalbe. Will was actually an author on my podcast because he has written two fantastic books called The End of Your Life Book Club and Books for Living. He loves asking people what books they're reading and finds fantastic answers. And so dedicated a whole podcast to finding out what notable figures, including authors and celebrities, are reading. He's had guests like Kevin Kwan, Melinda Gates, Peter Hedges, and Jodie Foster, and has had many guests that I've also had on this podcast, including Min Jin Lee, Danny Shapiro, Gretchen Rubin, Michael Frank, and Pamela Paul. So you should listen to his episodes and go back and listen to some of my episodes and check out his podcast. It's an insightful show. It's full of moving stories and you'll find even more books to add to your TBR list than I have on this show. So uh, check out But That's Another Story with Will Schwalbe. I'm here today with Sarah Hurwitz, who's the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Sarah is the former head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. And she was chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton on her 2008 presidential campaign. She has been featured on The Today Show and NPR and in The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and people.com. She was named one of Forward's 50 Jews who impacted American life in 2016 and 2019. Originally from the suburbs of Boston, Sarah is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. She currently lives in Washington, D.C. 
So welcome, Sarah. Thanks for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books. Oh, thank you for having me. We've already just had the best conversation. So we basically don't even need to do this podcast. <laughs> We're done. It was We're great. Done. Yeah. <laughs> so Sarah's book, Here All Along, and I'll read the subtitle. Settle, settle in. <laughs> Subtitle is Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Yes, it's long. <laughs> it's a mouthful. That's okay. I, I it's agree. awesome. I love it. <laughs> Tell listeners what this book is about. Yeah, so this book is basically my account of what I found when I, as a kind of disengaged, disconnected, very skeptical and secular-minded Jew, started exploring Judaism as an adult. And what I discovered is that it has so much wisdom about how to be human— beautiful theology and spirituality, ethical wisdom, you know, wisdom about what it means to live a worthy life. And so this book is an account of the ancient wisdom that Judaism offers for our modern lives. And it's for Jews. It's for people who are not Jewish. It's really for anyone who's curious about the wisdom of an ancient tradition. So it has chapters on various conceptions of God and the divine. It has chapter on Jewish ethics, Jewish holidays, life cycle rituals, Shabbat, which is the weekly you know practice of taking a day off and just resting. And yeah, it's really, it's for everyone. And that's, that's the thrust of the book. I love how in the book you say that you stumbled, like everybody who's out there being like, mindfulness is this big thing and gratitude. You're like, Judaism has all that already. Totally. It's like so many of the trends in modern spirituality, like we've been on that in Judaism for thousands of years, right? Like the first prayer that traditionally observant Jews say when they wake up in the morning is it starts mode ani, which is grateful am I. Literally the first word you utter from your mouth is grateful. And you're basically saying a prayer that says, I'm so grateful for my life, right? Like gratitude journals are great. I'm so glad that people have like joined the party, but we've been here for centuries, if not millennia, right? So, and you know, meditation and mindfulness is great. There is a Jewish meditation tradition as well that goes back thousands of years. So I think that you're just realizing so many Jews like me, citing myself, like we kind of think, oh, Judaism, it's old and stale and it's not meaningful. So we go to all these other traditions to find meaning, but we have it right here in Judaism. You need to do like a, not a pamphlet, but like a primer where you don't tell anyone it's about Judaism. <laughs> exactly. And I you just, just say, say like, these are some of the things in this new way to be. And then at the very end in tiny little print, you'd be like, <laughs> guess what? Guess what, guys? Surprise, it's Judaism. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's really something. So tell me about when you started out, you were, you started this big campaign with your family, right? You were in Hebrew school. You didn't like that Hebrew school. You ended up in this sort of loosey-goosey, more liberal <laughs> Hebrew school, if you will. Tell me about from there to here. Yes. So I, you know, I grew up with, I think, what is kind of a typical 1980s Jewish-American background of boring services. You know, we went to Hebrew school twice a week. And I just decided one day when I was 11 years old that I was, like, done with Hebrew school. Like, the kids were mean to me. I was bored. So I convinced—I told my parents I wasn't going back. And so they found me this other Hebrew school that was, like, very loose. (laughs) It wasn't a lot lot of Jewish content there. And then I had my bat mitzvah, and I was like, okay, I'm done. Right? There's nothing to see here. This is not where I'm going to find meaning or spiritual connection. And then 25 years later, I broke up with a guy I was dating. I had a lot of time on my hands, and I happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class at the local Jewish community center. And I signed up just to fill time. Like, literally, it could have been a ceramics class. It could have been a karate class. I was just looking to fill time. I was not thinking, oh, I will heal through this class, or I will find profound meaning. I was thinking, my name is Sarah Hurwitz, and I know nothing about Judaism, and maybe I should learn something and fill my time. And that class, what I learned in that class just blew me away. And there was all of this edgy, radical, progressive, 
deep wisdom about what it means to be human. You know, just all these like ethical texts we were studying about how to be a good person, you know, theology and spirituality about different Jewish conceptions of the divine that are not man in the sky who controls everything, which I do not believe in, right? So, but there are conceptions beyond that. And I was just really intrigued. So I took another class. I read hundreds of books. And I have to tell you, I found it very hard to learn about Judaism as an adult. It is hard to put this all together. And I think a lot of the books out there were these kind of like intro nuts and bolts how-to books or these super esoteric academic books, which like eight people read, and I was not going to be one of those eight people. And so I thought like, I wish I, maybe I could write the book that I wish I'd had when I first started learning. And that's really what this book is. It's a a book for, you know, people of all backgrounds. And I will say, you know, a lot of people who are not Jewish or who are sort of Jew hyphenish, right? They're Jewish, but disengaged. They're like, oh, this book, like this is this is what I've been looking for, right? This really sort of teaches me what's available to me, even if I'm not Jewish. And I've also had more observant Jews say to me, like, this is so interesting. I've never thought about Judaism this way, or like this is sort of a fresh perspective or different insights. And I think that is a result of me having been a speechwriter for a decade where you're really writing to an audience of America, right? This very diverse, broad audience, and you're trying to reach a really diverse group of people. And I think that's what I sought to do with this book. Back up to the speech writing for one second. Yeah. You were talking to America because you were speech writing for former President Barack Obama and former First Lady (laughs) Michelle Obama. So it's not like you were just speech writing (laughs) for like, you know, the accountants down the road. Right. What was that like? I just have to find out. We can go back to Judaism. Please, no, I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, I worked for President Obama for the first year and a half. And then I, you know, I would help Mrs. Obama with things occasionally because I I met her on the 08 campaign and worked with her a little bit there. And after a couple of years, I just realized I liked working with her better, right? I was more at home in her voice. I just was more interested in the topic she was talking about. So I switched over to being her head speechwriter. And working with her was awesome. And you said in the book that was like a career questionable move because you went from being a high up speechwriter, a senior speechwriter for the president and decided to go and be the head speechwriter for the yeah. first lady, which I guess is not something that, that is not usually not you don't go from like the president to the first lady, right? It's usually the other way around. And I think back then, you know, eight or nine years ago, people were like, you know, viewed it almost as me kind of demoting myself, which is crazy when you think about people involved, but I disagreed, right? I think for me, it was going to the place that just felt right for me, right? Where I felt like I could really do my best work and I was most engaged and passionate. And, you know, working with Mrs. Obama, like this, she is a woman who knows who she is. She always knows what she wants to say. And she's just a brilliant speaker and writer in her own right. So like working for her, you just sit down and you're like, okay, here's where you're speaking. What do you want to say here? And she would just download paragraphs and paragraphs of beautiful language, themes, stories, quotes. And I would type really fast on my laptop and that would be the heart of the speech. And then I would shape into a draft, send it around to colleagues for edits and corrections. And then I would send it to her and we'd just go back and forth. You know, she would edit, I would edit her edits. She'd edit my edits. I would send her these elaborate memos being like, you know, on page three, I changed, you know, if to this, you know, these tiny word changes. I remember saying to her at one point, Years from now, when people look at our memos in the archives, they're going to think we were two very neurotic women, right? (laughs) Because we were, you know, she cares deeply about every word because she knows that words matter. And she just, like, every word had to be right. Every transition had to be right. She has such high technical standards for speech writing. And it's funny, having left the White House, when I, you know, when I first started giving 
prepared speeches for myself, I realized like, oh, I'm, I have much lower standards for me than I did for her, right? Like I'm, I'm just so much easier to write for because I just, you know, I'll have sloppy transitions. I'll have kind of a loose structure where she just had a real sense of perfect transitions, a really tight structure. And so I, I learned a tremendous amount from her. And she's fun. She's just, she's fun. She's warm. She's funny. You know, when my book came out, she sent the most beautiful tweet just Aww. saying such kind things about me and the book. So I just, I am a huge fan. I feel so lucky to have been part of the Obama world. Did any of the speeches have a role in her becoming book? Like, did you, or did any of, I mean, maybe the same themes are obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think she talked about some of the speeches in her book. And I think, you know, it's funny, like the, her book, it's so clear that you know, so much, it, it's, it just sounds like her, right? That, that is, it's her voice. I love Becoming. It is this. I'm sure you've probably I read it. I haven't read it. Oh, I know. Okay. I shouldn't say that publicly. I'm <laughs> no, mortified. Okay. I have a copy. I want to read it. You have read so many books. I mean, I am sitting here in your library surrounded by all the, you've read more books than anyone I know. So no. I feel like I try to read books of people who I have a shot of having on my podcast now. <laughs> and that one, I was like, I mean, there's no way. Am I really going to spend all this time? No, I'm kidding. I will read it. I will read it. No, just, no, no. I mean, it's just, I appreciate how honest she is in the book, right? You get, there were a lot of things I learned about her reading the book that I hadn't known, right? Because in the White House, everything is happening so quickly and you're just, there's not a lot of time when you're just kind of sitting and chit-chatting, right? That's just not part of the daily White House experience. And so to actually get to hear her in this more intimate context of her own book, it was really cool. Did you ever sit in on things that became really public, big things, but you got to hear it first and oh, I don't know, see it on the news or I don't know. I feel like in my head, yeah. I have you in a movie of this whole situation, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're in the back of Air Force One and the big peace deal is negotiated or something. You know? you know, that would probably be more the president's speechwriters would have had more of that experience. You know, I certainly sat in on things that, you know, were at that point not public and then became public. Like, you know, I think about the speech that she gave in October of 2016 in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape that broke out with Trump bragging gleefully about sexually assaulting women. And she gave a speech right after that revelation about the misogyny in this election, about rape culture. It was basically an early Me Too speech, right, well before the Me Too movement had really taken off. And you know, knowing that before, you know, knowing that that speech was coming, I, I had a sense of like, this is really something really important is going to happen, you know, when this speech is given. And it did, right? She gave this speech and it was a visceral, raw, you know, very emotional speech. And just the response that we got was really moving. You know, she just received so many emails and letters from people who said, you know, I'm no longer going to be ashamed, like hearing you speak so openly about this crisis, like I am not going to be ashamed. And we actually got a lot of letters from men as well who said, thank you for finally making the point that this isn't locker room talk. This is not how men talk. I don't talk this way. My sons and brothers and friends don't talk this way. It's unacceptable. So thank you for saying that. And I just, you know, being part of that was an incredible privilege. Did you ever feel as a speechwriter that you weren't, that you minded not getting credit for your work? I mean, you're obviously a beautiful writer. This book is incredibly well-written. Obviously, you're a brilliant writer writing for that country. But you don't have your name on it. You can't be like, Mom, look what I did. And You know, it's funny. No, I didn't. Because, you know, with Mrs. Obama, I never felt like, oh, this is mine. I wrote this, right? It was always starting with her, with her thoughts, her ideas, her feelings, a lot of her language. And I was, you know, I was working with that and I was wordsmithing and sometimes I'd add some, you know, ideas to enhance what she was saying. But it never, I never would say like, oh, these were my words, right? They really came from her. You know, I think it was more, I was assisting her. 
I think it would be different, you know, if I wrote for someone who didn't have any thoughts or ideas of their own and I was scripting them. Maybe I'd feel that, but I, I don't feel that way at all with the Obamas. Not at all. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And when people I get kind of I find it difficult when people are like, oh, you know, you put words in her mouth or your words. It's like, no, 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 no. You're like, have you met Michelle Obama? No one puts words in her mouth, right? That's not how it worked. So I, I just, I actually don't, doesn't bother me at all. Can you tell me a little more about speechwriting in general? And I know I sound like a moron here, but I don't know much about being a speechwriter. And it's really interesting. How many speechwriters does the president have? How many speechwriters does the first lady have? Yeah. How do you get recruited to be a speechwriter to begin with? First of all, you're not a moron at all because it's no one knows about this, right? It's very mysterious. There's not like, oh, you get this speechwriting degree and then there's the speechwriting track. It's very few people do it. And I will say, you know, President Obama probably had about six full-time writers, and Mrs. Obama, it was me, and I had a deputy, so there were two of us. And, you know, the way you get to be a speechwriter totally varies person to person. Like, many of us interned in speechwriting offices in the White House, on the Hill, with speechwriting companies— you know, some people work at, there are, there are a couple of companies that actually do speechwriting, right? That's kind of their bread and butter. And so, you know, you can get some training there. Sometimes people are journalists and become speechwriters. Sometimes people are press or communications people and become speechwriters. Sometimes people have no background. I mean, John Lovett, who was one of our speechwriters in the White House, who I worked with him on the Hillary campaign, like he has a math degree, right? He majored in math in college. So it's pretty quirky as to who finds their way into the speechwriting world. And the way speechwriting works, it's so different for every person that you're writing for. You know, the Obamas were very engaged, very involved, start to finish. But there are some speakers who are like, I don't know what I want to say. Just give me something to respond to. And they have this really chaotic process where it's like they're rewriting it the last minute and 20 people are weighing in. And it just, so I am so grateful to the Obamas because they were just so engaged from start to finish and they had such a reasonable, thoughtful process. It made it, it made it a joy to speechwrite for them. I mean, I was there in the White House for all eight years and many of us were, I think there were four speechwriters who were there all eight years. That's very, very rare. Wow. Very rare. So then how did you decide to go from that 
aside from the boyfriend breakup. <laughs> right. That's still a pretty big transition. It's and I would say, transition. you know, everything happens for a reason. That you, <laughs> There's a reason you didn't end up in a karate class that night and that you did end up in intro to Judaism. Like, I'm not buying that. I think God would not buy that. But I'll just let that go. How did, how did that happen? Did you decide you were done with politics? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't, right? It was just a sense, like, it's still kind of a— you, I can't totally articulate. It's like, why didn't I decide to write a book, right? Why not just learn about this, mm-hmm. benefit from myself, and then move on? I think there was just some sense of, like, this story isn't being told in the way that someone like me needs it, right? There's so many Jews like me who are, you know, who are disengaged, who just don't know a lot about Judaism, and so many people who aren't Jewish who are curious about Judaism, either because they're married to someone Jewish, they have Jewish friends or families, or they're, they're seekers who are just curious about the wisdom of world religions. And it was such a struggle for me to learn that I kept in the margin of my books. I would say, like, why didn't they say it this way? Or like, no, this is the main point. Like, why not emphasize this? And after a while, just thinking, like, maybe I could write this book. And I remember saying, but I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a scholar. I can't write this book. I'm not qualified, not qualified, not qualified. Very woman approach to these things. Interesting gender dynamics there. And I actually had a a good friend who introduced me to his friend, Adam Grant, who is a wonderful best-selling author and just an incredibly generous, kind guy. And Adam Grant gets on the phone with me for an hour and I'm telling him I'm not qualified. I can't write this. I don't have the degrees, the skills. And he, he talked to me over the course of an hour. He sort of talked me into feeling like I could do it. He actually said to me, something I'll never forget, he said, Sarah, I just want to say what you're saying is essentially that every journalist who becomes really interested in some topic that they know nothing about and then learns deeply about it and writes a best-selling book, you're invalidating that. That's not legitimate. They're not qualified. Is that what you're saying? And I was like, well, of course not. He said, how are you different? Right, that you're doing exactly what so many other people have done. Like, you are qualified. You can do this. And that was what helped me take the leap. And how long did it take to write this book? So it was about two years. I had been reading and learning for three or four years beforehand, but the actual process of writing the book, it was two years. It should have been three or four. I was a first-time author and didn't quite understand what was involved in a book. I realized pretty quickly that I had not asked for enough time, but I decided I just wanted to get it done. So it was like, two years, but like 70 hours a week, kind of two years. I worked probably harder on this book than I did in the White House, which was really saying something. Yeah. And where did you like to do your work? Did you, are you out and about or do you do it at home? Yeah, so I need vault-like silence when I work. I'm just really easily distracted. So I did some of it in a shared workspace, but even the quiet room was like not quite quiet enough. So I wound up doing a lot of it just at home in my apartment, which can be isolating, right? It can be isolating and lonely. And it was important for me to try to see other human beings every day, right? like try to get a coffee, a dinner, just something where I was not you know, alone in my apartment for days. So having finished it, would you want to work on another book or? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Are you already working on another book? Yeah. I'm thinking about another book I want to write kind of in the, the God spirituality realm, but it's just so, I barely even started conceptualizing it yet. You know, I I wish I had more time to be thinking about it, but I, you know, it's kind of funny, like Jews don't talk a lot about God, right? Which is strange. We say the name of God a lot in our liturgy, but like we never really talk about what we mean by that because I think, you know, we're, we're you know, we're a thoughtful kind of doubting, skeptical, questioning people, right? And we don't just take things on faith. 
And Judaism also has this wonderful theological humility where there's no Jewish creed of God. You'll never find anywhere in Judaism where they say, God is this and God does that. You know, we don't have that kind of dogmatic approach to spirituality. And I so appreciate that, right? There's such humility in that because what we're saying essentially is like, this is so much bigger than our little human minds and hearts can grasp, right? Like, let's have the humility to say, okay, here's some conceptions, right? There are Jewish thinkers who say God is everything. You're God, I'm God. There's no barrier between us. You know, the homeless man on the street, like he is God, right? Like how different would your interactions with people be if you actually looked at them and you said like, that is a manifestation of the divine right there, that person, right? There's Martin Buber who said, God is what arises between two people in deep human relation who are fully respecting and contemplating each other's humanity. What arises between them is God. There's Mordecai Kaplan who says that God is the process by which we become our highest, truest selves, right? The humility and just having all these different conceptions I love it. Right? I just find that so moving and so thoughtful. Sarah, don't you think you should be teaching a class about this or <laughs> being a rabbi? <laughs> Maybe not a rabbi. Rabbi is a little too extreme, but like you should definitely be at the Jay Z or something. Well, it's funny, you know. My book was actually an attempt to do that, right? I, I, I know, wanted, but yeah. you, I feel like you in person, it's very different. <laughs> like you're so engaging and like. Yeah. I would take a class or like, oh, send my thank husband to you. class more than they, you know, he might read the book. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, the book is, there's an audio book. So no, I'm listen. sorry. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> he would have bought the book. Every Jewish person should have this book. I'm just saying that yeah. you should, I, I mean, it's a smaller audience, but yeah, I think you should have a class. I mean, it's, and it's so fun. I feel like, you know, learning about Judaism just took me so much time. And I just thought no one has this time. Like people do not have time. And I would never say to other Jews or or people who are just curious about Judaism, I wouldn't be like, okay, here's what you do. You read 300 books and take eight classes and spend thousands. It's like, what? People do not have 10 minutes to breathe. So, you know, writing this book was my attempt to distill everything I'd learned into something that's like engaging and accessible and meaningful, but also really substantive. Moms don't have time for religion. Right? There you go. (laughs) don't have time. Like, and I insisted on taping the audiobook myself because I knew, you know, a lot of moms and parents have said to me, like, the only time I have to read is in the car when I'm carpooling. I'm like, great. You know, what a blessing to, like, for me to be able to reach people that way, right? If you don't have time to read a book, I get that. Like, audiobook, maybe you're walking somewhere or just at the grocery store. Like, even if it's just five minutes, you know, this should be accccessible to people. I don't want it to feel like overwhelming. I didn't mean to imply it was. No, no, I was no, just no. trying to give you more ideas. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, you're totally good. A lot of people have actually suggested becoming a rabbi. That's, that's actually like, I get that a lot. And I, you don't you want know, to be a rabbi. No, I, I don't. And I think my space is not the like expert authority space. My space is like, I'm a Jew, like, you and me, I'm a seeker, like all you people, like this is just me sharing what I found. And I think that's more relatable, mm-hmm. right? Because it's just like, I look at things as just a person without a lot of training and expertise and I question them and I wonder and I'm like, really? I'm not sure about this. So I think that You know what you should really do. Yeah. <laughs> in case you didn't know you were looking for things to do, but I'm just Please. Gonna, you should be a speechwriter for all the rabbis around the country <laughs> because the sermons can be so bad. I mean, I love my rabbis if you're listening, <laughs> But you could you could do that, and then you could, like, franchise the— you It's could. so funny. I mean, like, being a rabbi is so hard because they're expected to be a great sermon giver and speechwriter and a great teacher and a great CEO and a great psychologist, pastoral person, and a great— It's like, yeah. this is, like, seven jobs that they're supposed to be experts in. I'm like, we need to, like, rethink the rabbi role because I think it's really unfair. Like, what we <laughs> expect of, these, of people, it's just like, and you— 
look, the reality is for a lot of Jews, and I, including me, is like we stopped learning at 13. 20 years later, we have kids. We're like, uh-oh, someone's going to make these kids Jewish. Ain't going to be me. Like, hey, Hebrew school teacher, like, you teach my kid 4,000 years of Judaism, and I'll give you three hours a week. But, oh, Noah has soccer for two of those hours. So it'll be one hour a week and make sure he's ready for his bar mitzvah. It's like, that's impossible, right? Like, we have to grow up. We just have to grow up. We have to become adult Jews if we want to know how to raise Jewish kids, right? And I think that's, you know, so often people ask me, well, how can we improve Hebrew school and why is Hebrew school school bad? I'm like, no, 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 no. Hebrew school is not the problem, right? The problem is we're trying to outsource all of Judaism to Hebrew school teachers and it's just not fair, right? This is something that we have to figure out, okay, we have to just, we have to develop our own adult Judaism and then you'll know what you want to pass on to your kids, right? You'll be able to say, pick and choose and say, well, this, this is something they need to know. This, meh, not so much. Do you have any advice to aspiring writers? Oh, great question. I mean, first of all, read a lot of good writing. Key. I also think find someone who is a good editor who can help you. So much of good writing is good editing. And I think having worked with, you know, my dad growing up, you know, he's a really good editor and he would, he really did a lot of great teaching for me. You know, he would say to me like, okay, how can this sentence be tighter? Or how, you know, and it, it sort of made me really think carefully and critically about my writing. So I think that's really important. I also think, you know, a couple of just really nuts and bolts tips, cut 10%. Whatever you've written, email, memo, just do it. You can do it in red lines. You can put it back, but do that because it will force you to hone in on the weakest parts, the parts that are repetitive, the parts that are unnecessary, and it will often make it better. I also think that when editing, it's helpful to edit in a format in which you weren't writing. So if you were writing on your computer, print it out and look at it on paper. If you were, you know, or, or look at it on your phone, you know, and I also think, or look at it in a different font, right? Different size or style font, just to kind of mix it up in your brain. Because I think when you've been looking at a piece of writing over and over again, you become numb to it. You can really no longer see it. So you've got to kind of make it different for your brain. I love that. That's so easy. Select, yeah, right? Select, They're just oh, like, change font. Exactly, right? Those are kind of quick tips that I used a lot when I was a writer. I think the final thing is oftentimes when something you're writing doesn't feel good, it's because the structure is off, mm. meaning it's not in the right order. And what I would often do with speeches, I, was, I, I would print them out. I would lay them out on the floor of my office. I would get down on my hands and knees and look at them as a whole. And when you do that, you start to see like, wow, I'm saying the same thing on page three and page six. I don't need to say that twice. Let me condense. Or you'll see like, oh, this thing that is my introduction, uh-uh, this is my conclusion. And so I would often move things around a lot. And I did that with my book as well, like 25 pages spread out on my living room floor. You'll find then once you actually kind of figure out the right order, then you find yourself cutting a lot of kind of lame transition language. Like when something is not in the right order, you're trying to force it to work. So you'll have all this language being like, and this brings me to this next point, which doesn't quite connect to my last, but you know, you can get rid of that language. Have you seen The New Little Women? No, I haven't, but I want to. There's a scene where she takes all these pages of a manuscript all <gasps> over the attic, and they're all over the floor. So it just reminded me. That you. is totally how I write. Totally how I write. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for coming. I'm sorry for all my unsolicited No, I appreciate it. Listen, I, and I, I actually find it flattering, right? Because I do, I do think there's something special about this kind of like in-person verbal communication, right? I actually, you know, I do all my book events as conversations, I don't do a standard book talk because it just doesn't work for me, right? Like I like to be in conversation and I feel like that is such a great way to reach people, right? Because that book is like, it's a commitment. You gotta really sit and be alone with it. But 
Actually, being able to talk and share this way is pretty special. Oh, thanks. Special for me, too. (laughs) This is a joy. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. This episode has been sponsored by the podcast, but that's another story with Will Schwalbe. Check it out for insightful stories to find out what notable figures like authors, actresses, and directors have found to be some of the most powerful books in their lives. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.